you're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The latest surge in COVID case counts may have some nervously looking over their shoulders. Last month, as we marked the third year of the pandemic shutdown, the positivity rate was at a low of 4%. But in just a few weeks, that has now doubled and now sits at close to 9%. Officials have long said the actual rate could be higher since more people are using home tests and may not be included in the state count. Last week, there were nine new cases that required hospitalization for a total of 52 people in our hospitals. This morning, we turned to state epidemiologist Dr. Sarah Kemble for guidance. So the rise that we're seeing in COVID hospitalizations over the last two weeks is something that I think we will see from time to time. We're going to see some peaks and valleys, and we've often seen a rise in cases, especially right after breaks or major holidays. So a lot of people have just gone on spring break, probably did some travel. So it's, I think, not unexpected to see a rise. We aren't seeing a rise in deaths yet, but we have often seen the pattern that when cases and hospitalizations make a bump, we also then start to see increased deaths a few weeks down the road. So I think that's another thing I'm looking out for. What does it mean? I, you know, I, like I said, I think we're going to see these kinds of rises and falls, but it is an important reminder that COVID-19 is not over. The federal public health emergency is coming to a close on May 11th, but COVID-19 is not gone. So it really means transitioning to a state of uh, being able to manage COVID-19 from a public health perspective and having awareness of what's going on and remembering that there are things we can do to stay safe. The biggest thing still is getting up to date on your COVID-19 vaccines. So if you've had the bivalent booster, as of today, there is not a recommendation to get another one. But if you have not, go get one now. This is probably the biggest thing you can do to protect yourself and your family. And there are still people out there who may not have even gotten their first vaccine shot for whatever reason, and they're still at risk. Yes, I will say, I think right now, um, as we look at the evidence, having a recent shot is probably the most important thing. So getting your primary series was great, probably did a great job of protecting you back during Delta and Omicron during its earlier phases. Right now, what we're seeing is a very high level of population immunity, but it's a combination of vaccine-induced immunity and immunity from people who've just had the infection. And we have actually a whole lot of people now that have both vaccine and infection, which means you have and sort of an extra immune boost at this point. However, if it's been a while since you've either had disease or a booster, your immunity will wane to some degree. And we keep seeing in studies that having a recent booster is the most protective thing against hospitalization and death. So um, that's why it's so important to get the bivalent booster if you haven't had it yet. Okay, so the line of first defense, vaccine, booster, mm-hmm. uh, what's the guidance on masking and distancing? Before I get into that, I did want to mention one other thing, which is that recognizing symptoms and getting tested right away when you have symptoms is also really important because for many people, uh, and you should talk to your doctor to find out what, um, whether you would be somebody who would benefit from early treatment for COVID-19, but if you have those symptoms, get tested And if you're positive, talk to your physician about treatment. 
we still have really effective, safe treatments for COVID-19, and that also can keep you out of the hospital. Yeah, and I'm hearing more people saying that, oh, yeah, I, I did do the Paxlovid regime, mm-hmm. and that, you know, may have helped for folks who, you know, maybe in high-risk categories, you know, elderly or, you know, health-compromised. Right, exactly. And then you were asking about masking. I think masking is still an effective mitigation measure, and it's really a choice at this point. I think now with such high levels of immunity, which is great, um, we can rely more on the vaccine to do more of the work. But for some individuals, there's uh, extra protection in wearing a mask. And so for, for me, um, I probably will always mask when I travel <laughs> going forward. I don't know that I'll ever stop doing that. I used to get sick all the time when I got on the plane. And it's not just for COVID, but for other respiratory pathogens that we're at risk for when we're in close quarters with a lot of other people. So some of that is common sense, uh, making personal choices for you and your family and deciding if you want to put that extra layer of protection on, then wear that mask. You know, I was at a theater event and they required all the attendees to put on masks, which I thought was good. You know, it was a smaller theater, Mm -hmm. but it was just that extra step, that precaution, you know, that this theater was taking. Yeah, and certainly there are situations where you're in a crowded scenario or in a congregate situation where masking may be appropriate. And what about distancing? Yeah, I think we've, as a society, we're kind of moving away from the social distancing. And again, thanks to vaccine, we're able to to shift back to more what we consider normal interactions with others. For people who are severely immune compromised, that may still be a consideration that you want to pick and choose who you're going to get close to because we do have still circulation of COVID out there. So as we see the hospitalization numbers rise, that's sort of the reminder that, you know, activity may be up a bit. It may be a good time to exercise a little bit more caution. We do have Easter coming up. So there, you know, maybe family gatherings, that kind of thing. What's the best guidance at, at this point? My main recommendation for family gatherings is, um, you know, this is why I really emphasize that booster. I want people to be able to get together with their loved ones. I think that's an important part of the holidays. And the safest way to do that is to have everyone boosted. The city and county, I think, did just announce that they will be uh, ending their hotline. What should people do then if they have questions at this point? Right. As we look at the end of the public health emergency for the feds coming up, I think there's going to be several changes. There's going to be some stand down of, of some of the services that have been there to deal with COVID surge. There are still resources. So I just want to remind everyone there's a, still a ton of a wealth of information on HawaiiCOVID19.com, our state um, health department website. There's still vaccine locator information. And um, there is also a hotline through the state at 808-586-8332. That's open Monday to Friday, 745 to 4.30. Interpreters are available, and you can get information there, too, about vaccine, testing, and other questions and guidance you may uh, guidance questions you may have about COVID-19. And is there anything else that you can share about this latest variant? We are still seeing different evolutions of XBB, and some change in the variant proportions with different subvariants of XBB. To my knowledge, up to this point, we aren't hearing about anything dramatically different about these newer subvariants. So it's not um, something that I think is the driving factor in the bump in hospitalizations we're seeing right now. However, you know, we are always watching those new variants and trying to understand if there is any new emerging pattern. So it's something that we'll continue to be vigilant about. 
There is some news out now that the FDA is looking at approvals for a additional bivalent booster. So I did say if you've had your bivalent booster, uh, you don't need to rush out today to get another one. But do know that there are discussions ongoing and uh, anticipated authorization of an additional bivalent booster dose within the next few weeks, according to the FDA. I'm still waiting to hear more about that. Is it going to be for all ages? What interval is going to be recommended? Um, We're watching that news closely. And we'll, of course, be sharing it when we get more. With any strain of COVID, as we've seen, there can be serious disease and death. And that's why, you know, getting boosted is so important. But the current variants don't seem to be worse than prior ones. You know, I think that continuing to be aware of what's happening with COVID is still going to be important going forward. Uh, I think it's not going to be with the intensity that we've had, uh, knock on wood, you know, barring a new, much more virulent variant. Um, or, or dramatic changes in what the vaccine can cover. But I think right now we are settling into a phase where COVID really is looking more endemic and we're learning to manage it along with other respiratory diseases. I think, we'll, you know, in the future, I think we'll be looking more at understanding the impact of all different respiratory diseases that ebb and flow, like COVID-19, flu, RSV. These are all players and they're going to continue to be. And so having uh, a situational awareness of what's you know, what's circulating out there right now and what are the particular concerns for me as an individual and what can I do to protect myself against these different respiratory pathogens. That's, I think, where we're going to be moving more in the future. Um, That's what we're hearing from CDC as well as they revamp surveillance for COVID-19. I think we're going to see some changes in COVID-19 surveillance, maybe some decreased frequencies and reporting. So, you know, these are some of the changes I'm looking at as we look towards May. And that was Dr. Sarah Campbell, state epidemiologist, talking to us about the uptick in COVID cases. She cautions while the feds may move to drop the emergency declaration, it does not mean prevention measures should be dropped. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Today, we're remembering a Waikiki club that was a fixture of the local nightlife scene for 25 years. It can be a long time in the ever-changing world of entertainment, but the venue we have in mind stayed on the cutting edge of musical and fashion trends. When New Wave ruled a roost, brands like the Squids and Sonia and the Revolution were regulars on the bandstand. When reggae and Jawaiian came along, the club was right there with them. Over the years, several celebrities were spotted hanging out there, including Elton John, Rod Stewart and the police. Its slogan on the edge of Waikiki was more than just a geographic reference. The club opened in November 1980 in a building 
that it previously housed a series of nightclubs, including the Dragon Lady, Royal Day, Fast Eddie's, and the Lava Lava. It's probably best remembered by the distinctive mural on the outer wall. And for today's Backyard Quiz, we're looking for its name. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as Women in Need on Kauai. NareetHawaii.com. Hey there, it's Michael Barbaro, host of The Daily. Join us for an in-depth look into the world's biggest stories. Catch The Daily Monday through Thursday at 1.30 here on HPR One. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Naturopathic Retreat, offering a plant-based wellness detox retreat in Kealakekua Bay on Hawaii Island, May 18th to the 28th. Registration at 808-933-4400. This hour, trustees of the Office of Hawaiian Affairs are meeting to talk about a proposed compromise over the future of development in the Kaka'ako Makai area, also known as Haku'one. HBR reporter Kuvehi Hiraishi joins us this morning, and you've been tracking this. <laughs> yes, they are still in executive session as we speak. The Board of Trustees are taking over uh, Speaker Scott Psyche's proposal, which was sent uh, to the board in the form of a letter, and I know Speaker Psyche was on our show, The Conversation, yesterday sort of outlining some of that, just for those who may not have been paying attention. It's got a proposal for about a $100 million payout and perpetual easement for those lands in Kaka'akomakai, which would uh, preserve the area for public access and scenic views and keep the building heights and density currently in place, but also adds on top of that uh, $65 million for wharf repairs, right? Fisherman's Wharf is part of that land and a bump in OHA's uh, share of public land trust revenues that it receives every year, bump that up to $25 million, and then an extra hundred k for good measure to help DLNR kind of develop a complete inventory that's searchable, a uh, searchable database of these PLT, or public land trust lands. So there is a lot in there. Uh, the I believe the letter came out on Monday, so it's been a couple of days uh, for the board to kind of go over what exactly this would mean, and you know, this comes after I want to see a little bit over a decade of figuring out what to do for OHA, of figuring out what to do with its Kaka'akumakai lands. So they have invested quite a bit of money 
in uh, studies and focus groups, but also plans for the area. So going back on that may be a tough call, but at this point with the residential land, uh, residential development ban in place for that area, um, it's it, that's a hard thing to move. And I think OHA may be, there are some on the board, as I understand it, they are split. Some are um, in favor of, you know, possible alternative proposals such as psyches because we're, they're not seeing as much movement on the residential ban lift, but others want to stick with it. They've invested a lot of money and a lot of time into their plans there, and they want to see those plans come to fruition. So time is of the essence, I should say, as well. Uh, this proposal is taken legislative form in Senate Bill 1235, and the logistics are a little tricky. But if OHA does decide to approve uh, this proposal, the committee would need to hold a hearing on the bill. And right now, I believe it has a triple referral and has had no hearings. So it would need to move pretty quick. And even even if it passes the committee, the Senate needs to support it. As we understand, Psyche has not yet spoke to uh, the Senate on this proposal, but that would need to happen. And the Senate has in the past been uh, somewhat supportive of uh, OHA's plans in Kaka'ako-Makai, but the legislation just did not get anywhere in the House. Uh, we were able to speak to Ron Iwami, head of uh, the Friends of Kivalo, a group that's been opposed to any plans to develop residential towers on the Makai side of Alawana Boulevard in Kaka'ako, and he says he welcomes Psyche's proposal. Oh, and we believe it's a fair deal for OHA, and hopefully they will, they will go with it. I guess the reason why we're happy, too, is because we want that land to stay open space to be enjoyed by you know all the people of Hawaii instead of being overrun by high rises. We don't we're not against OHA or residential per se, but it's residential we don't want it over there on the last public I mean last oceanfront land in urban Honolulu. It should be preserved for everyone. So plans for Kaka'ako, we know, have gone uh, on residential development in Kaka'ako has gone back and forth at least four times since 1985. Uh, Iwami and the Friends of Kivalo are big drivers of the current ban uh, that's been in place on residential development the last 17 years. And we should remind folks that OHA did agree back in 2012 when it... Uh, took this settlement uh, for ceded lands revenues that the state owed them, that it would be an as-is deal, right? And so knowing that the residential development ban would need to be lifted through an act of the legislature, and that's kind of where OHA finds itself at this point. Um, Moving forward, I know we've spoken in the past to Casey Brown, the chief operating officer of OHA, at OHA, who said, you know, if, if there is an alternative offer to replace uh, their uh, Hakuone lands, it would need to be a substantial offer. Whether or not this one, uh, this psyche proposal is it, we shall see. The, that's what the board is currently discussing in executive session. Right, right. And, you know, we heard that one idea floated uh, about, oh, is there a land swap possibly mm -hmm. near the stadium, right? Right, you know, I remember that one. Lo lots of uh, different ways to try and satisfy um, OHA's needs. Yeah. Uh, because I know that there's a big uh, kind of chasm between, you know, what's the assessed value of that land. Right. Uh, and, yeah, it, it, so I guess folks are hopeful that there, there may be some meeting of the minds here and that we can take this forward. But, yeah, obviously 
they want to get something through session uh, or or go into special session? I don't know. Right. That's a possibility as well. And we shall see what OHA ends up doing here. It sounds like Psyche uh, is motivated to move things forward and hopefully can get the Senate on board if that becomes, if this proposal becomes the uh, the case. Right. And Senate's not saying anything at this point, right? Not yet. Okay. And then we'll see what <laughs> OHA decides, if they decide anything uh, exactly. at this meeting. But thank you so much, Kuwait. Mahalo. We've been talking with HRS Kuvei Hirishi. You can read her stories on Native Hawaiian issues and Hawaiian culture on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Yeah. Partners at Civil Beat have a story about a reverse mortgage case gone awry. Investigations editor John Hill joins us today for a reality check. Hi, John. Hi, Catherine. Yeah, your headline for your story, reverse mortgage lender takes a Hawaii man's home over a $500 repair. That's just amazing. Yeah, it all started in 2009, um, and this... uh, borrower, Elton Namahoy, was at his home in Curtistown on the Big Island and said some strangers showed up at his door offering uh, to sign him up for a reverse mortgage that would allow him to use the equity of his house to live on. And that sounded good to him because he was getting by on Social Security and um, didn't have a ton of money. And so he signed up. Uh, Where things went wrong were that the the reverse mortgage also included a rider that required him to make a $500 repair. It was a rotten railing on his porch in addition to a leak in his carport. And uh, uh, things went wrong when the the lender, J.B. Nutter and company, got the, the idea that he had not done these repairs. And there had been some money set aside to make those fixes. That's right. They withheld $750 from his loan proceeds. In case the repair didn't get done, they would use that money to to do the repair themselves. It's unclear why that didn't happen. Instead, they decided that he had not done the repair, and they foreclosed on him. So he lost the house, and he lost. And he's he, yeah. yeah. So I mean, he went and he was sort of homeless for a while. <laughs> Yeah, he. Uh, the first thing that happened was he bought a van and lived in the van until the van broke down a few weeks later. Then he was living on the beach and the streets. And then, luckily, a sister in Texas persuaded him to, to move there. She had a small ranch in Texas, and he lived there for a while and eventually made his way back to the Big Island. I mean, it's such a sad story, uh, you know, because this case has dragged on for nearly a decade. It has, and he lost all of his appeals, basically, until last week. The Hawaii Supreme Court said this this foreclosure was not done properly, that the lawyers for Nutter, the lender, uh, went into court and said that everything had been done properly, and they had legal standing to foreclose, and 
it went through on the basis of that. And it was only last week that the Supreme Court said, nope, that's that's not the way it happened. Um, what they found was that the lawyers and the lender failed to disclose that they had not arranged for a, a inspector to go out and see if the repairs had been made and um, and that they should have that should have been part of their due diligence and they didn't do that and as a result they vacated the foreclosure and, and supposedly he made uh, the fixes uh, with some help um, from friends right that's right he says that that he did do it he uh, had a neighbor who had a tenant who came over and helped him and he did do the repairs but uh, Nutter um, never sent anyone out to see if that had happened and just proceeded with the foreclosure. Well, I, I know that uh, the, the judges really mulled this over uh, and were just, you know, wondering about just the the fact that it was a $500 repair and this gentleman lost his house over this. Well, and the Supreme Court was very strong in its opinion, too. In addition to the irregularities in the paperwork, the court just said it's just a simple matter of fairness that you should not take someone's house over a $500 repair. And so this decision, I mean, this is uh, really serious implications for foreclosure law then. It does. I think it, it really makes it clear to lenders that and lawyers who represent lenders that they have to have all the paperwork in order and the lawyers have to do their own due diligence and make sure that it's all there. Uh, the court, the Supreme Court, found that the lawyer and the lender had committed fraud on the court um, by not doing that. So that's a very clear takeaway from this. And in addition to that, the court has also made it clear that judges should should look at the overall picture and and not do something that's patently unfair, as this case was. And so this gentleman. Uh, can't get his house back. It's you know time has passed, and he's, you, your story mentions that he is in a nursing home, but uh, he still has to try and fight to get uh, damages for what's happened. That's right. Um, so this opens the door for him to go back and seek damages, and his attorney, who took up this case after the foreclosure was already done, you know, is, is prepared to go back and seek damages in seven figures. He says, "Yeah, well, it's quite a story." But thank you so much, John. Thank you, Catherine. That was Investigations Editor John Hill with today's Reality Check. You can read the full story. Visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from BAMP Project, presenting bluegrass and alternative rock singer-songwriter John Butler from Australia, performing at 7 p.m. Friday, April 14th at Hawaii Theatre. Tickets at bampproject.com. It takes our entire community coming together to bring you the voices, stories, and music on HPR. We're fortunate that thousands of listeners rely on us across our islands and around the globe. But only a small percentage of our listeners have stepped up to financially support our nonprofit mission. So, will you? A tax-deductible donation of $10 a month to HPR is a great place to start. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. today's Backyard Quiz, we went looking for the name of a trend-setting nightclub that was a key part of Waikiki's nightclub scene for 25 years. It was known for its trend-setting approach to music and fashion and its reputation for adapting to changing times. It opened in 1980 and shut its doors in 2005. It featured a mix of new wave, reggae, techno, and hip-hop artists in the days when those musical trends were taking over the world. Bands like George Thorogood and the Destroyers, uh, Bow Wow Wow and Grace Jones, an eclectic mix, if there ever was one, graced the stage uh, over the years. It was all of the, also the site of Stevie Nicks' first performance after getting out of the Betty Ford Clinic in 1986. If you're of a, of a certain age, you may have danced the night away at this nightclub on the edge of Waikiki, or you might remember it for its distinctive mural. Of course, we are talking about the Wave Waikiki. Today, the Allure Waikiki Condominium Building stands in that spot. Congrats to Trish from Waipahu. You are our winner for today. But that's the quiz for today. And if you have an idea for a one to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, a week from today, Mary Monarch's Miss Aloha Hula competition kicks off in Hilo on the island of Hawaii. It is the 60th year of the Hula Festival, and we had the chance to sit down with Kimo Kahuano, who has had a front row seat for 42 years as MC of the premier Hula event. He recalls when festival founder Dottie Thompson first approached him to help showcase the festival. Dottie goes, Kimo, you think you want to do Mary Monarch for one year? <laughs> and I bit like a shark on a line looking for the fish to go. I said, wow, I don't have any stress. Just one time. I'm going to give it everything, everything that, that I came from. And what I came from was Mikey. Auntie Mikey, are you like? What I came from was Walter Mokini was a great steel guitarist and helped me to be a part of this crazy business, show business and as a youngster, just out of Kamehameha schools. Kaupena Wong, who taught me in the fourth grade the Lonoi Kamakahiki chant. And not thinking about it, Kamehameha schools, fourth grade, okay, I learn them, do the whole thing. But he felt there was something special there. And uh, so I got to really understand that feeling of chanting from Kaupena. And Kaupena was very, very wonderful, very special man. In fact, at one time, he wanted me to perpetuate that olelo and that kahiko and that feeling. So how's that, yeah? You don't oh even know what you're going to do in your life. And, and people are influencing you in different ways. And Auntie Mikey, uh, you like, was like a second mom. Because she's the one that really brought others in a major way to hula. Who would have thunk it, yeah? 
that that could have happened in such a wonderful way. So how many years way. has it been? What? I cannot hear. <laughs> no, it's been, a, it's been a long time. 60th anniversary of the Mary Monaculo Festival, 42 years. That started as one year at Mary Monarch in 1981. Well, I just remember at KITB, because I'd worked there, all the excitement uh, that Ooh. came with it when we started you know, broadcasting it. Yeah. Because it was a huge event. And huge. it was just a wonderful showcase. You know, a lot of people don't know that Emmy Tomimbang from KITB was so involved with the Mary Monacula mm-hmm. Festival, Early you know. On, yeah. She was in the early days. And so many others. Uh, Keahi Allen's mom. And uh, uh, how the the halau just were poised and ready. And then Iwalani Luahine with her presence, her spirit, her mana. Wow. So here's this kid, you know, going through <laughs> all of that stuff, right? Fundraisers, doing all that stuff. Not realizing that uh, it was so, indeed, so very, very special. And then I started, kept doing it and everything. And then uh, um, my wife goes, you know, maybe we should go and uh, just, you know, go over Olelo with Ipolani Vaughn. Ipolani oh. Vaughn's wife at that time. Well, um, she was just so special in what she gave to the Olelo and gave to us. You know, it was so huge, so beautiful. Yeah, you were so fortunate to have so many wonderful teachers. Yeah, yeah, to have teachers and to have names, long names, names like, ladies and gentlemen, for Miss Alohahula, Kiliolane, Nuiamamau, Ho'opi'ivahine, Kapua, Lokeoka, Laneakea, Lai. Oh. oh, yeah. Oh, I'm going, huh? <laughs> well, I, I must admit, I butchered many Hawaiian names last week. So I gave you lots of credit because, yeah, you, you need to know them. That, yeah, that's and part just of your ask, Yeah, mm-hmm. just go, uh, excuse me, Loana, uh, what, what are they, how do they pronounce this? Uh, you know, so I don't have to interfere with the Kumu and with the Misalohula and all that stuff. But they have everything down. So uh, the Marymonic Festival has always been cared for and organized and doing the best they can do. I mean, considering, right? This is a world event. Yeah, it's a big deal. And oh, I, I was just yeah. so in awe of, of you and Paula Akana, you know, for, for just presenting those names in, in the way they should be. Yeah, she's back doing it. She's going to be doing commentary with Mono Boyd. And unfortunately, this year, they're outside of the stadium. So what that does is it creates a void in the stadium because they're talking, but nobody can hear them. And they have no monitors for, you know, the audience to see, like in sporting events, right? You have monitors. You have people who are talking, and they can catch everything. So It'll be interesting. <laughs> uh, hopefully that'll, you know, change eventually. But I guess as you reflect on your time, you know, with this festival, and it is an incredible festival. I mean, uh, you know, you talk about fundraising, and I know, you know, my niece always, you know, asks about the fundraisers. And I was just thrilled when she participated in the Miss Aloha Hula competition. It was just wow. like, wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. Just to have that. And it brings about that concept of respect. So for me, it's all about respect. Respect of the kumuhula as they prepare. Respect for the halau as they're there, set and ready to share in their hula kahiko or hula awana. 
Mr. Lohula, you know, the one thing you want to do is never interfere, never step in the way. So everything has to be uh, done in a very respectful way. And that's what I try to do. Sharing the respect, the aloha, for each and every one of the contestants, the halau, and of course, each kumuhula, or dedicated, right, to their halau. Oh my gosh, and so much planning and practice goes oh, into yeah. an event like this, you know, yeah. it is a competition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. And when you think of a halau and how they have to, you know, poise themselves in the just the learning of the hula, whether it be kahiko or wana, the lyrics. What is it? What are we sharing? And how they do their movements. I mean, that is awesome, the commitment that the kumu hula has to make. And that doesn't even cover the other part. And here's the other part, okay? I'm going to tell you, okay? okay? <laughs> Secret now, okay? Don't tell anybody. A kumuhula is really like a second mom or a second dad. The haumana go to them, they talk, or they just feel this and that, and, and the kumu cares for them and tries to keep them always in the great you know, perspective of hula for what it is, where it's going, and how that quality helps their lives, right? I mean... How many times have we seen that? People, whether they had hula for the background and they were young and then they left and they became business people and they became, you know, entrepreneurs and they did lots of successful things. Sometimes the discipline of that hula and understanding what you have to give to it makes you understand what you're giving to life, what you're giving to your family, what you're giving to your profession. So... It's so beautiful, so beautiful, just to be a part of it, you know. We have been talking with Kimo Kahuano, who served as the MC of the Mary Monacula Festival for 42 of its 60 years in existence. And we'll continue our conversation with him right after a short break. for HPR comes from Chaminade University, committed to teaching the concepts of social justice and affecting change in Hawaii's communities, offering an online master's in criminal justice studies. Chaminade.edu. Is it possible to fall in love with a chatbot? Many people already have. And my guest this week says it's not as scary as we might think. After spending a year speaking to so many users, like maybe one man's fake person is another man's lifeline. AI blows up the dating game. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon, following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Monarch Week kicks off next week. There's a crafts fair, which opens on Wednesday, and then the Miss Aloha Hula competition begins the day after on Thursday. We will continue our conversation now with the festival's longtime voice, MC Kimo Kahuano. 
What I love is when you see, as the years go by, the Haumana now in charge of their own halau, and they're, they're paying homage to their hula teachers, to their kumuhula. And, and, and so that's really fun to see the yeah. next generation coming up. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, people like uh, Daryl Lupinue, who I saw grow up and being a part of shows in Waikiki, and, and then being that kumuhula and taking center stage, so humble. And yet, bringing the perspective of hula to men in a very special dynamic, and then those men go off and become kumuhula. Wow. You know, and we should mention that there are uh, some halal that do not compete. You right, know, right, and, right, right, and don't, right, right. don't take part in this. I, I just was recently at the Mahu show that uh, Patrick Makuakane put on. Patrick oh. Makuakane, <laughs> who was a part of uh, Robert Casimero's Halau many, many, many years yes. ago. But then he felt his own art and his own deliverance of what he wanted to not just say, but live and, and present. Yeah. Fabulous show. There you go. He is just brilliant, you know, the choreography. And, and so it's that kind of thing. You, you, you elevate the dance. And then when you see an artist like Patrick break out of the envelope and, and take it to a different level, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and, and for those kumuhula, whatever they choose to do, right, whatever they choose to, to share in their art, truly this is a great presence like, like the masters of art in Europe. As we look at Picasso and we look at some of the great works of art, and we feel, not only see, we feel that. Well, the same thing happens in hula. It's living art, and it happens because the paintbrushes each and every haumana of that performance. And for me, they're riding the wave of that presentation, that history, that culture, everything in their performance. Yeah. Well, oh, chicken skin. I, no, you know, I'm I sitting know. on the side of the stage yeah. and everybody, wow, we can't help it. Yeah. No, we it, feel it. it. It's amazing, too, when you see what it has become because, you know, the festival, you know, the, the costuming, and then you see, you know, all the Hawaiian designers that now say, okay, I'm Ooh. getting ready for the Merry Monarch, so all my efforts are going to be going toward, you know, a, a collection yeah, the extension, the extension of the art, right? And it's done in so many different ways. And uh, music is one of them because the music complements the performance of the halau and, or the misalohula. And so the musicians uh, are not there because they want to be, hey, this is who I am. No. They can do that anytime. They can do that in their recordings and the Hoku Awards, uh, you know, receiving a Grammy. They can do it in many, many ways. But here, it's all about, like for me, the performance of the Kumuhula and Halau and Misalohahula. That's what it's about. That's what makes Mary Monarch the living art of Hula in Hawaii. Wow. And then, do you have a favorite? Do you prefer Awana? <laughs> oh, Awana or, or, or Kahiko? Uh, you love it all. <laughs> uh, I, I do love it all because when they when they send you, it is very special. I'm just proud that we have Kahiko because we would be missing something that's integral and part of who we were if we didn't have Kahiko. So. The respect of having Kahiko and Awana 
makes it a complete picture, yeah? And, and did you dance when you were younger? Uh, well, you know, in those days at Kamehameha, I graduated in 66, so we got to hear the songs, and Nona Beamer was teaching us. But as my friend asked our counselor, Nathan Kalama, he said, I want to learn Hawaiian. And at that time, Hawaiian wasn't being taught. And now we all look back and go, wow, we should have been there. We should have been there with him saying Hawaiian now. Now. It would have helped us so much. But we didn't have it. Mm -hmm. So what can we do? Let's do the best we can. Yeah. Well, you have done so much by doing what you do with Mary Monarch to help elevate culture and dance, you know, melee, just for all of us. 60 years. Isn't it amazing? 60 years. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and it started simply, right? It was like, and I got to mention George Naope, because he was one of the dashing, wonderful spirits in his ability and his way and his knowledge, but also in understanding he wanted to have fun, he wanted to make this a celebration. So that was that was good. And there were so many others. As you mentioned, yes. not every halau is going to be a part of Marian Monarch because they all have different goals. And they all you know, have to take it in a certain way to get more people to be involved. But we know they watch. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, just the fact that they can watch and see others inspires them to be the best they can be. Oh, and, you know, in those days, uh, uh, Mr. Bill Kaiva goes, uh, I was working for Danny Kalikini at the Kahala, dancing. Kalani Cockett was a choreographer. Uh, Penny Silver Wells was a singer. Jimmy Kabuiki was the uh, head of the band. And uh, Miss Hawaii, Lena Ala, was a part of the, the dancing. And uh, Hutch and Kaipo Kincaid, and, um, they were all a part of this special presentation. And Bill Kaiva guested with Danny. And so I'd see Bill, oh, Bill, because I loved that song, The Boy from La Boy Hoi, the way he did it. So one day he goes, oh, Kimo, Auntie Mikey needs 10 guys for her, Uniki, at uh, McKinley Auditorium. You think you want to be one of the guys? I go, oh, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding me? Oh, but I learned so much as a result. Of that, for Mikey, the temple drum. I mean, it was it was just it made you live, and here we all are, just doing it. But with the drums and everybody feeling the tempo, it was like we were living it. Yeah, yeah. You know, not just feeling it. It was just, wow. Mikey gave us some beautiful moments that were very, very special. And, and to have that carry on from the kid days and then move on and develop in a level gives me even more respect for what the Kumuhula is accomplishing, what they're living, not just in one performance, every day. Yeah. Every day. And every day when you get a call and it's your hamana. Every day. Yeah. What do you do? To share your love, share your aloha. How? 
so wonderful. We've been so privileged to be able to watch this festival grow over the many decades. Yes. And yes. Uh, we hope it will live on forever. Yes, yes. And, and the key aspect to that is that there are others who are learning and growing. And that allows this continuation of the flow of art and how it relates to the melee, to those who came before us, to those who we respect and love, to those who want to give our history and our culture and our people more, more. Well, and it is. we'll see what happens in Hilo, Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it, this has been such a incredible kuleana for you to be able to be a part of. And we thank you so much for all you, yeah. you have done and yeah. all that you do. And, and the tears uh, are tears of joy, yes. of respect, of aloha for everyone. And for 42 years of being able to be a part of Hula in such a special way. Thank you, Auntie Dottie Thompson. Thank you for allowing me to do it for one year. <laughs> Mahalo. <laughs> Mahalo. We have been talking story with Kimo Kahawano, who shares that he's been honored to be a part of the Mary Monarchula Festival for 42 years of its 60-year history. The event kicks off with the Crafts Fair Wednesday, and the Miss Aloha Hula competition will be broadcast on Thursday on K5 and continue through the weekend. Well, that does it for us today. Up tomorrow, it's a Hanaho for a Kumukahua production of Lois Yamanaka's acclaimed Wild Meat and the Bully Burgers. It returns to the stage after, oh, more than a decade and a half. Got questions about something you heard on our show? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.